Well, good morning, good friends, dear friends, church family and friends. Just uh, again, greeting you from the library. And this is our second week of completely not meeting together. And I'm here alone at the building while the church is scattered throughout the community. And I just uh, want to remind you that on Monday, not Monday, but Sunday, November 1st, it's a new beginning, a new beginning of the month. It's the month of where we celebrate Thanksgiving. So on November 1st, we, were, we will gather again together here as a body, taking our necessary um, distancing precautions and however uh, you deem fit to uh, uh, manage your health. If you're unhealthy and you're feeling sick, uh, obviously you should stay um, away and uh, get yourself uh, strengthened back up. But however you deem uh, right to participate together, starting November 1st, we'll be back together. So that's November 4th for Awana. And let's just continue to pray for each other. We went from uh, having very minimal numbers in this extended community to having a spike. And so that's why we've taken a break. And so just continue to pray for each other and encourage each other and be mindful of uh, some of the rhetoric and, and tough things that are, that are happening and even being said um, in the broader picture about the, the virus, its effectiveness, its ineffectiveness, uh, uh, about masks and not masks. And so let's be as mature and as thoughtful and gracious as we can, we can be to one another and uh, just continue to grow in our walk with Christ. And this crisis is a time of pressure and stress that's affecting us all in different ways. Um, we're, we have a, a beautiful opportunity for a Sunday school class to meet with uh, Carol teaching us now. And that's been postponed temporarily via Internet only. And we need to kind of probably revamp that as we get back together because it's much more effective um, being together, personally interacting with each other, one face to face. And so. We'll look at that and see how that pans out as she um, returns from some trips that she's on and also just how we work out the details of the Internet feed and things like that. And so just want to remind you to continue to pray for one another and the prayer requests are uh, updated as quick as we can on uh, our online bulletin. And want to just continue to encourage people to be calling each other, pray for each other, participate in each other's lives as best you can from um, the distance that you need to have. And so we just, uh, again, we gather this morning. We're going to enter our time in a new chapter today in First Peter chapter 5. And I think back when we started in this book back at... Uh, during resurrection season in uh, chapter one, and now we're in chapter five, coming near the end of this marvelous letter. And so uh, before we open up the word together, let's uh, 
Just take a second, uh, remove some of the distractions, grab your Bible, uh, get a blanket in a cozy chair and table if you can. And we're going to uh, grab a pencil and a piece of paper if you want to jot down some verses that I may go over too quickly. And let's, uh, let's spend some rich time today in the one of the greatest places we can spend it, God's word, as we uh, open up First Peter. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and your goodness, and we pray for each other, Lord God, and I just represent this community as we pray and love and serve one another and seek to uh, orientate our lives around you to honor you, to lift you up, to praise you, to acknowledge, Father, the same, your Son, Jesus, our Savior, to uh, live and to die, to give his life as a ransom for many, um, to pay the price for our sin and to redeem us from the ravages of sin and death and hell. And we just acknowledge, Jesus, that you are our Savior. You're the head of the body, the church, the family, the believers, the, the ecclesia, the call-out ones, the members, the congregation, the uh, fellowship, those who seek your face and put their trust and hope in you, and those who are learning in this journey together that how, how uh, great a God you are and how great a salvation you offer. And so, Lord, as we open your book today, that you would encourage us and guide us and strengthen us. In Jesus' precious and powerful name, amen. So, like I said, we're in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm only going to cover a couple of verses. We'll see how far we get, and um, I won't finish, but I will stop in some sort of timely fashion. And so First um, Peter chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings, and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 
to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We'll stop with that and finish the conclusion next week. But before we do that, let's just take a moment to, to ponder a few things about Peter as he closes this letter. I asked myself, how old, how old do you think he is? As he says, he addresses to the elders among you as a fellow elder. Is he talking about age? Is he talking about life experience? Is he talking about wisdom? Is he talking about people? All those things are probably included. Just think about um, Peter for a moment. He's the one who was a fisherman. He was called by Jesus to follow Jesus and immediately Jesus changed his name. You will no longer be called Simon, but be called Cephas, which translated means Peter, basically little rock. He walked on water and then he sank. He washed, he refused uh, to Jesus to wash his feet and then Jesus washed his feet. He agreed to it. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed thousands. He was involved in that. He denied Jesus. He saw Jesus at his transfiguration. He witnessed the crucifixion. He heard God speak. He was freed from jail. Uh, he wept bitterly. He was rebuked by Paul. So when he's thinking and he's addressing this community, of scattered believers, and he's writing to them probably near the end of his life. Nobody knows exactly how long he lived after this, but um, he could have been uh, eminent facing certain uh, um, death. Uh, the history says that he was crucified himself, um, but refused to be crucified like Jesus was, who so was crucified upside down in honor of his Lord. But we don't know the exact details of the end of his life. We just know that uh, he could have been thinking about a lot of things. He's not thinking about title when he uses the word elder. He's not thinking about a position of prestige and power. He's not thinking about fame. He's not thinking about lording it over people. He's not thinking about getting rich. He's thinking about what it meant to be a shepherd like the chief shepherd, Jesus. He's probably thinking about his journey. He's thinking about where he's been, the people he's met. He's thinking about when he first met Jesus and through the ups and downs of that relationship. And he's thinking about what it means to be a servant like Jesus. He's thinking about uh, the fact that um, he will be leaving these precious people to the care of others so that he wants to leave them with some closing words. But more than that, much more than that, he wants to leave them with some people who will continue to care for them like Jesus cared for them. Maybe he's thinking about uh, Paul's last words, his friend, Paul, when Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and he called them together, and he was saying goodbye to them. And Paul said this to them, Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds 
of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort, distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember, for three years, I never stopped warning you, night and day, even with tears. Maybe he's thinking about what Paul said right there, and he's recalling, this is a serious time. I hear this in Peter's voice. I hear this in his final words, even as, he, as they're echoed in his letter, in chapter, in his second letter, in um, his final words in his second letter, he wrote this. A whole chapter, chapter two of Second Peter is dedicated to false teachers and their destruction. Teachers who would come along after he's gone, after Paul's gone. Um, just like Jesus said, many false Christs will come. And I hear in his voice what he learned from Jesus, how to be a shepherd, how to pour out his life for people he loved. In Second Peter, he wrote this. In chapter 2 of Second Peter, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive hearsays, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction <clears throat> on many. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. And he goes on to talk about them in verse 13 or verse 17 of chapter 2, 2 Peter. These men are springs without water. Like they, they look like they should offer things, but they don't. These men are springs without water, mist driven by a storm. Blackest night is reserved for them. He goes on in the chapter 3. He sa says to them, um, first of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come. So his final letter, when he says to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, shepherd God's flock. He's thinking about the transition that he's not going to be there anymore. And the people that are going to be there to lead the flock need to be diligent because there's going to be false teachers. There's going to be scoffers. There's going to be apostates. There's going to be people who are going to come along and try to corrupt and lead people astray. He closes his letter, Second Peter when he says, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience um, means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with the wisdom that God gave him. Therefore, dear friends, verse 17, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by air of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forevermore. Amen. So they turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. As he's closing this letter, he's thinking about relationships. He's thinking about people. He's not thinking about prestige. He's not thinking about power. He's not thinking about position. He's thinking about people who will shepherd the flock like Jesus. He's closing the letter. He's reminding them to pay attention. And he, I hear in his voice, um, one who's experienced 
shepherding himself. Jesus shepherded Peter. And remember, as he's writing to these people, he's already telling them from since the beginning of the letter how to he's exercising shepherding over them. And so to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. A couple of words jumped off the page for me as I just tried to think about the big picture of the outline. One is the word elder. One is the word shepherd. One is the word flock. And the other is the word serving. So the word elder is a position. A word shepherd describes a person and a particular type of action of a person over other people as they lead and serve and care and protect them. The flock, that would be the believers who are being cared for everywhere along the journey, scattered, found, lost, um, uh, the beginning of the journey, the middle of the journey, the end of the journey. So that's who the flock would be. And serving so that you would serve willingly, that's describing how this shepherding is done. And so um, I couldn't help think in preparing for this sermon, I had fresh memories of the beautiful, wonderful, amazing, godly, holy people that have shaped my and influenced my life over the years. People, some of whom who are now in heaven, people who I moved away from and some who moved away from me. People who have rebuked me and encouraged me and corrected me and prayed for me. People who taught me um, priceless lessons about God, uh, his word, his grace, his promises. Uh, priceless lessons about myself, about my marriage, about parenting, about pain and about trouble and about suffering. So when Peter uses the word elder... Just ponder that for a minute. To the elders among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. All that is coming along, not a position, but a person. And so when he's thinking about the word elder, he's thinking about shepherds. He's thinking about his past. He's thinking about his present. He's thinking about the, the future. He's thinking about the people that he encountered throughout his life, the people he's encountering now, the people he knew that have moved on, and the people maybe he'll meet in the future. It made me think about the, the first 45 years of my life, a lot of forming, a lot of foolishness, a lot of, of uh, immaturity, lots of things that had to be worked out by loving people who had to encounter me, encounter me, Maybe in times of my most immature moments and my most uh, foolishness. And then between 46 and 57, these 10 to 11 years I've been here so far, the people that have come alongside me and shaped me and nurtured me and prayed for me and, and still teach me and help me and um rebuke me, correct me, work with me. And then in the future from 57 years old on 
just think about the people that God will bring into my life, the people God will bring into your life. So this is a, this is a rich sentence. Um, and I'm just a kid. I can hardly understand all that Peter might meant and what it might mean for somebody who's 80. I recently had the privilege to stand with a couple as they renewed their vows. It took 41 years, 41 years of joy and tears and pain to get to that place, to renew their vows at 41 years. And that's, I think, about what I get here is I understand that to the elders among you, anybody who would think that eldership was a position of power, prestige, and uh, prominence, it doesn't quite understand, certainly doesn't understand the context of what Peter is thinking about. And I thank God for you people. I thank God for anyone and everyone who's touched my life in the past, and who's touching my life in the present, and who I've yet to meet in the future. Each of our lives bears the scars and bears the glory of the lives that we have encountered along the way. And who is to equal to such a task as to stand in the, in the presence of God and to recognize the, the, the beauty of God in people who we have the privilege to walk with. So it, it's a big concept. It's, it's big shoes, a big position, a big people we're talking about when we talk about elders. <clears throat> I want to help us unpack a little bit. Who were the elders? What is an elder? What do they do? Where do they come from? In both the Old and the New Testament, the word elder is used 188 times. And it, when I was trying to get step back and get big perspective um elder was a strongly jewish title with a long history in jewish communities it goes all the way back and we have to do a little bit of a history lesson here but obviously we can only take a small portion of the 188 verses so i want to kind of give us a picture as best i can of these 188 verses that use the word elder and see if we can formulate who these people were, what an elder was. So when Peter says to the elders among you, he's thinking of a specific characteristic of a certain type of person who has um, influence and leadership and oversight and shepherding and nurturing and governing and caring. And it, it's a vast term, but who they were were not necessarily where they started. And who they've been is not always who they should have been. Who they're becoming might not always be who they are yet to be in the future. So this this person, this position is... Um, it starts back in Exodus. We'll have to just look at some verses here. And I'm going to go and you can jot down the verses or you can try to follow me. And I'll try not to go too, too fast. 
but we encounter elders among the Hebrew people. And we don't find them being necessarily appointed or put into position because the story just picks up in Exodus. They're already among the people. And so I think I have the first time the word elder is used. It's in Exodus chapter 3, verse 16, where it says this, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, prepared, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what you have been done to you in Egypt. As I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and to say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God. So I'm reminding, we need to be reminded Moses was a great leader of his people, but he was not alone. He had from the very beginning, there was to be elders around him, supporting him, praying for him. Um, we don't um, understand everything because everything isn't included in the story of his everyday interaction with these elders. But they keep appearing that as they shepherded, they mentored the community and they, they had charge over uh, leadership in the sense of directing, correcting, protecting, providing. And so that's what they were doing. They're elders. So this is the story in Exodus when they were dealing with Pharaoh and the elders were there. And we don't see them appear before Pharaoh, but we do see Moses appear before Pharaoh. And we can assume by implication that the elders are there. In chapter 4 of Exodus, it says this, chapter 4, verse 29. Moses and Aaron, Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. So there are people that are informed. There are people that are there. They're there for support. In chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, verse 21, when uh, they're going through the celebrating the, the Passover meal, Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. So these elders were fathers. They were family heads. They were people of influence in the community. And you can keep reading that through the Old Testament. The word elder pops up again and again. And they're leaders, people of influence in the community of the Hebrews and the, the Jewish people. When you come to the New Testament, we find, again, evidence of elders. And I'm going to read in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter 15. And again, I can only point out a few of these, but it gives us a, the background. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, it says this. I'll read from verse one. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands. So have these elders, if they're now tradition keepers, 
helping the Pharisees and the Sadducees keep the law and their leaders among the people. But we see right away there is some division with what Jesus is doing. And the elders are being used not to support him, but used against him. In chapter 16, verse 21, it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. So here we have the word elders, and all of a sudden we get a picture that, wait a minute, these elders that were supposed to be caring for the flock, helping shepherd, helping do God's work, are now opposing Jesus, who is God's highest servant. And we'll find out in, uh, as we read further, Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, Matthew 21, 23, Jesus entered the temple courts. And while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? So here's the elders along with the chief priests, probably the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these leaders. They're against Jesus. They're not for Jesus. And so you would think, well, elders, that could have a bad connotation. And um, we know that down through history, church history, and you could read stories from the past, the present, that elders come with all kinds of horrible baggage. Depending on your personal experience, depending on what you've experienced and depending what you understand from Scripture, the word elder could have, could have terrifying connotations connected with it. Elders have abused people. Elders have taken advantage of their position. Elders have taken um, advantage of prestige, and they've used it to manipulate and harm people in many, many, many horrible ways. Elders have um, robbed money. They've run off with the secretary. They've abused people. They've abused children. Elders have uh, also poured out their lives for others in love for Jesus' sake. And so as we follow the word elders through the, uh, into the New Testament, I noticed a distinct transition. The first 30 times in the New Testament, it's a bad connotation. There's a bad connotation. These are the elders that are persecuting Jesus. These are the elders that uh, stand against the apostles, the leaders of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the elders, those leaders who oppose God and oppose Jesus. And then there's a transition, except for just a couple of verses um, used from Acts chapter 11, verse 30 on. Look at what happens here. So in Acts chapter 11, there's a distinct transition in how the, you, the use, the connotation and the background of the use elder is used in Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Acts chapter 11, verse 30 says this. 
The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did by sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So now we have elders. Rather than opposing Jesus, elders are bringing gifts. They're, they're leaders among the people who are bringing gifts. Um, there's two other verses in Acts that I need to point out that are very telling. In uh, Acts chapter 23, Acts chapter 23, this is where Paul is um, recounting his story and what took place. And he's in he's being held a prisoner. So in Acts 23, verse 14, what's recorded is a group of people. Look at verse 14. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So here's elders that are involved in a conspiracy, conspiracy to kill Paul. In Acts chapter 25, Paul includes this statement. In chapter 25, verse 15, it says this. <clears throat> since the day, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I mentioned Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of Jews brought charges against him asking that he be condemned. So depending on what the context and your understanding and what Peter uses the word elder, it could be people that are, that at one time were opposed to the very gospel that Jesus was proclaiming. And so they're people of influence and they themselves need to be checked out. What's their background, where they're coming from, what their, what their motives are. And instructions are given in scripture to that very thing. So when Peter says to the elders among you, his use of the word elder is not those um, people who are opposing Jesus. His use of the word elder is those people who have risen among as uh, demonstrating godliness and fitting in the characteristics that Paul includes in Titus and Timothy and throughout the New Testament. And Paul uses the term, and Peter uses the term, elder and overseer interchangeably throughout the, the context of the New Testament. It would be like if we could pick out the same sort of title. It would be like in a family, it would be the grandma and the grandpa. They're the elders. They're the leaders. They're the ones with influence and experience. And um, if they're Christians, they'd be They'd be godly um, in the school. It would be the superintendents and the principals and the board and the teachers. Again, those people who have demonstrated and risen to a place of leadership and influence and competency in businesses. It would be the CEOs and the bosses and the employers, those people that were in leadership and positions of influence. In uh, sports, it would be the coaches and the coaches' assistants. In our community, it might be the, the mayor 
and the commissioners in politics. It would be the president and the governors and the senators and the military captains, uh, uh, generals. And so people God has given gifts and people who other people have recognized as responsible to care in specific ways, putting them in places of influence to serve and to lead. Now, can uh, people abuse those positions? Indeed, they have. Can uh, so, but do then we say that if one policeman is bad, then all policemen are bad and throw them out? Absolutely not. Can we say that because one elder abused his position, all elders will abuse their position? So we should rid ourselves of the position of elder and the position of elder. Absolutely not. And so what we see here is people, Peter is thinking not of prestige and power. He's thinking about people who have come to a place of godliness and influence. And as you go through Acts again, you come back to, I have to share a couple more verses in the book of Acts where elders were used in a positive light. They, the elders that were um, assigned and the leaders that were appointed of different church bodies and church families. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas were on their missionary journey, it says in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they replied. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord. Now, we don't have the time right now, but I would encourage you. Look up the word elder and look up the word server or leader. There's an interchange that takes place as the New Testament carries on. And even as Peter, one of the last uses of the word elder is interchanged there with overseer. And so the, the terms the, and the titles, need, we need to be cautious because for some, play, for some person, even the word father has a horrible negative connotation. For some people, the word father has a beautiful connotation because it's uh, surrounded with nurture and love. For some people, the word pastor could have a despicable connotation connected with somebody who uh, lied and abused uh, to the people and abused his position and his, his uh, privilege and took advantage of people. That has happened throughout history. That has happened in all sorts of places around the globe. And so we need to recognize that. But there's a transition that um, happens in with the word elder in the position that Peter's thinking of. He's thinking about a shepherd. So when he says, as a fellow shepherd, one who's going to um, be influencing the flock, He's, he gives characteristics of how that should be done. One who will share, be a shepherd of God's flock that is under your care. You think about the word care. 
under your care, not under your thumb, not under your authority, but serving as an overseer. That's a leader. That's an influencer. It's a person who um, has an opportunity to touch the lives of other people, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. So as we look at in the book of Acts, but Paul, as he traveled out in his journey, he would appoint leaders. He would appoint overseers. He would appoint elders. If he was in a more Jewish community, the word elder was used. If it was a more Roman community, the word overseer was used. And as that time uh, transferred and the church went from a strictly Jewish congregation, a Jewish fellowship, a Jewish synagogue, there was an understanding that it wasn't about a title. It was about leaders who had godliness, leaders who had time uh, to grow and develop, leaders who were demonstrating in the community um, their their characteristics that would fit in line with what Paul writes, a list in Titus, a list in Timothy of those type of leaders, those very leaders who would then shepherd the flock, shepherd the congregation. So that's who these elders were. And remember what I said, who they were supposed to be is not always who they are. Who they are is not always who they will be. Who, who they will be is someone they're not yet become. And they're always becoming. They're growing up into who they ought to be. And so are we. <clears throat> so that we find as we study scriptures, they're individuals who are called, selected, appointed, or recognized as those who are maturing in their walk with God. And they demonstrate the character qualities in keeping with the specific and the general descriptions we find in Scripture throughout the New Testament, Titus and Timothy, and other places in the Scripture. For those who would lead and feed and care and protect and provide for the believing community, with the overall leadership and the shepherding of Jesus being the example since he's the chief chief shepherd. All shepherding comes under his shepherding. He's the chief shepherd. He's the one who nurtures and cares and protects and rebukes and corrects. And so that's what we find in the New Testament. I need to scamper along. And I just wanted to bring up, um, I have the the constitution of uh, the, the chapel in my hand here. And I wanted to just... Uh, read a couple thoughts in here and it says about the government of the chapel what it says the government of the grace chapel is vested in its membership so that's the body those who are believers those who are recognized as putting their faith in jesus and they're recognized as a community together sharing faith together praying together sharing the highs and lows of life in their commitment to jesus it says that the government of Grace Chapel is vested in the membership and will be executed through a board of deacons. The board of deacons shall consist of at least three or more individuals whose lives shall be in keeping with the standards of God's word as seen in Acts chapter 6, 
1 Timothy 3 and Titus, each shall be selected or elected for three years. Any vacancy on the board that shall occur with a given year shall be filled with an individual meeting the constitutional requirements for a deacon and be nominated by the nominating committee and elected by the voting members of the church at any business meeting. The board shall be responsible for the following. And then it gives five things. Spiritual affairs of the chapel, the business and financial affairs of the chapel, the discipline of any unruly member of the chapel, and then the maintenance and the custodial duties of the chapel property, and then other concerns uh, that are brought to the board. And so um, we in our in our um, at this time in the development in the sage of the chapel, we don't use the term elder. We have a board of deacons that are people like what Peter's saying here to be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God's people, um, as God wants you to be willing, not greedy for money but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted you, but being examples to the flock. These examples to the flock. So the particular community in which leaders serves is going to have to deal with the limits, the human limitations. Realize that leaders don't live forever. I think about Doyle and Doris, Cleone, uh, Harvey, others who have gone before us, um, Don and Ruth Winters, people who have been leaders, but due to human limitations, their leadership is done. And yet it lives on in their words and in their life, um, their, the way they live their lives. Uh, elders and leaders move away. We've just recently said goodbye to some of our leaders. Uh, but the people that the leaders are involved with, we need to realize these leaders have unique personalities, unique gifts, unique backgrounds, unique educational experiences or lack of different leadership styles, different leadership perspectives, how the leadership is carried out. It takes time. It takes years to develop mature godliness with tears and immaturity marking the way. And so we need to be uh, looking at the bigger picture. One of the things as I close um, that I see happening here, I see the requirement of leaders is to the, the willingness, being willing, not being coerced, but being willing and not being greedy for money. Um, not, and, and it just doesn't mean money. That also means recognition or power or prestige or fame, but eager to serve and not lording it over, not domineering, but recognizing that you yourself, if you're a leader, you're in transition. If you're a leader, you're developing wherever you might find yourself leading. If you're to lead biblically, you're to lead willing eager to serve, not greedy for prestige or power or money or accolades, and not lording it over people, 
but to be an example to the flock. And that example is the example of Jesus. And so that's who Peter's talking about. And that's what he's talking about. And I wanted to just share with close with a story. I, um, one of the things that a shepherd does in their privilege and in their responsibility as shepherding is bringing perspective to the people. That's what Peter's been doing through his whole letter. As a shepherd, he brings perspective to people. And in this particular letter, over 22 times, he refers to, in one way or another, sometimes absolutely directly using the word suffering, he's referring to the trials and tribulations that these dear people are going through, and he wants to bring them perspective. So that's a main theme through all the, che- all the chapters, Peter's perspective on suffering. And we see that from chapter 1. Look at what reminded you of chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last times. But wait, listen to this in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So they're part of our lives, Peter says. Everyone will experience them. They come in various ways. Don't be surprised. They're all temporary. They, have, they provide opportunities for us to grow, to be refined, to be humbled, to learn, to be strengthened, to learn to trust God. They come from our own sinful choices. They come from Satan's attacks against God and against the church. They come from people who oppose God and who hate God. And so Peter continually points this flock to Jesus and reminds them of Jesus' own example of how he suffered. In chapter 2, he says this, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, verse 21, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Shepherd and overseer, shepherd and overseer, one who protects, one who provides, one who cares, and one who gives perspective. He's shepherding them. He's shepherding them the whole way through. He's helping them gain perspective about pain, problems, and suffering. Well, recently I gained some fresh perspective, this past week especially, when I received a book from a dear friend and mentor. Somebody who wants me to grow. Somebody who's making sure that I have opportunities to grow. And so I'm going to close with this story. This is a story from the book Unlimiting God by Richard Blackaby. It's one little chapter, one little couple paragraph. It's called this. Stretched stretched in the graveyard hours. When my son Daniel was 15, he began experiencing severe sleep issues. 
He'd be awake most nights until 4 a.m. He endured periods where he was conscious 72 hours straight. The hardest thing for him was the loneliness. He had to spend hours alone every night while his family and friends were sleeping. As concerned parents, we took Daniel to various doctors and sleep clinics. We tried to remedy. We tried every remedy the doctors suggested, but his continued condition only worsened. One night, unbeknown to us, Daniel hit a low point. He looked at the clock and saw that it was 3 a.m. Knowing this would be another all-nighter, he cried out to God, Don't you care about me? Don't you know what I'm going through? Why don't you answer the prayers of my friends and my family? Why don't you answer the prayers of my friends and my family and prayers for my sleep, God? If you care about what I'm going through, I need to know. I need to know soon. Daniel spent the rest of the sleepless night awake. Two days later came an email address addressed to him. He was intrigued since his email was normally electronic. Moreover, the return address was from just down the street. The note was from a friend in his youth group. She explained that she suddenly been awakened in the night with a powerful burden for him. So she got up out of bed and write him. She thought about telephoning him, but feared that it was too late even for Daniel. Her note, in her note, she quoted Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. She assured Daniel that God loved him and had a special plan for his life. She concluded by saying that she was writing um, might not make sense to Daniel, but she knew she couldn't go back to sleep until she wrote him this note. Daniel was so shaken by the message, he ran with the letter all the way to her house. When did you write this, he asked. Her answer revealed that it was the same night that Daniel cried out to God. What time was it? He persisted. She told him it was at 3 a.m. She remembered looking at her clock and decided it was too late to call. So God, God had heard the desperate cries of a sleepless teenager in the middle of the night and sent him a message. And I have written in the underneath, oh, Father, I know you're so good. I need to continue the story. Now, my son believed God loved him and was aware of his problem, but he had no idea why God was allowing him to go through such a frustrating experience. At least he didn't until several months later. Daniel's youth group went to the summer camp. It had been a difficult year, and many of the teenagers had been struggling. One evening, a youth pastor gathered the teenagers from the church and had them share what was happening in their lives. When it was Daniel's turn, he told about his ongoing frustration over his inability to sleep. Then a girl spoke up. She shared how she'd been undergoing an extremely grueling year. She was adjusting to a blended family. She experienced a painful breakup with a boyfriend. He, she had fallen into the wrong crowd at school and was doing things she knew were wrong. It seemed that everything in her world was coming apart. And she didn't fit in anywhere. Late one night, she returned from a party feeling terribly discouraged. She felt like a failure and a disappointment to her parents. She grew obsessed with the thoughts that she should take her life. She would no longer have to struggle with the problems that plagued her. 
Her mind raced as she considered how easily and quickly she could end all of her troubles. She grew frightened at what happened to her. She feared she might actually commit suicide in the next few moments. It was as her, though her mind and her body were being hijacked by an evil force intent on making her kill herself. She desperately needed to talk to someone to stop her rapid spiral into suicide. She knew her mother was asleep and she feared that waking her would only result in another argument. Her youth pastor would be asleep. Her best friends would be asleep. In desperation, she logged on to S MSN and found one found one person still online, Daniel Blackaby. Because it was so late, she assumed he had simply forgotten to log out before going to bed, but she sent him a brief note. He answered immediately, what's going on? She and Daniel were not close friends. They were merely acquaintances in their large youth group, but she was desperate. She told Daniel about the sinister thoughts flooding her mind. Daniel shared how he, too, had been bewildered at what was happening in his life, but had come to understand that God loved him and had a purpose for him. He did not yet fully understand. By the time they finished talking, she no longer felt the urge to take her life. She concluded the story, told the youth group at camp that summer by saying, if Daniel hadn't been awake that night, I would be dead today. Then a teenage boy spoke up. He shared how he too had experienced a terribly difficult year. He felt as if he didn't belong anywhere. He'd become involved with a drug dealer as his high school. His life was self-destructing. Finally, he decided to end it. He set a time and a date. He would slash his wrists and end his mis misery. When the fateful morning arrived, he rose at 4 a.m. and strapped ice packs to his left wrist. He wanted to numb it first to dull the pain before he cut his vein. As he waited those few moments, he was struck by a pathetic way his life was ending. He hadn't said goodbye to his friends. Soon he would be gone without having spoken to anyone. He decided to talk to at least one person before he died, so someone he knew why he had taken his life. So someone would know why he had taken his life, but he was unsure who to talk to at that hour. He suddenly thought of Daniel. He knew of Daniel's sleep problem and thought he might be have a chance at being awake. He phoned and Daniel answered on the first ring. By the time he hung up, he couldn't take his life. If Daniel hadn't been awake that night, I'd be dead today, he concluded. Then four other people shared how Daniel's pilgrimage of suffering had inspired them as they faced adversity that year. At the end of the week, I went to our church to greet the bus as it returned from camp, as soon as I saw Daniel, I knew that something special had happened. To the elders among you, I appeal as, as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, as one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lowering it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Shepherds, overseers, 
leaders. They have the responsibility and the privilege to bring, bring perspective of what God is doing in the greater community, even in the midst of suffering. I've heard many of your stories. I know God is at work in your lives, and we need to constantly be reminding each other. And so we have a particular responsibility as leaders, as overseers, as shepherds, to be this type of people, bearing the suffering of Jesus in our lives and suffering by trusting him so that we can be an encouragement to others. So that by the suffering we experience, we encourage others. And that's what Peter is saying to these people here as he transfers leadership in a sense. He says, as an elder among you, I appear, appeal as a fellow elder, shepherd God's flock. Love them, care for them, protect them, teach them, feed them, and give them perspective on the journey. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your love. And we thank you, God, for real stories like this and stories we read in Scripture of how in the middle of the night as the church was praying, an angel came and opened the gates where Peter was. Peter went to the door in the middle of the night and they were scared to even to open it. And then to their great surprise, it was Peter. Peter, who's writing this letter to these dear people who are scattered, these dear people who are hurting, these dear people who need shepherding and loving and caring. Nobody just stumbles into maturity. We mature because there's people in our life calling us up, teaching us, prodding us, urging us, rebuking us, correcting us. Lord, we're thankful for leaders among us men and women who you've put in places in our lives to help us to grow. Help us to be that for one another, Jesus. Pray especially for those who are suffering now and uh, be especially close with Mia and her family in the recent loss of her father and others who are suffering. God, be close to them. Help us to keep perspective that you are in it with us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. You've given us Jesus, our shepherd, as our example, as our leader, as our guide, as our friend. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.